Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 24 through 30 and then 36 through 43 this morning. Before I do so. Father, I say amen to everything that my brother just brought before you in prayer. I want to Ask for help right now. You know the need. You know You know what all could be said. And you know what needs to be said this morning and this hour. Not only for those who are here, but those who are joining in online. Our brethren who aren't able to be here, I pray. You would touch them as well and touch us here. Thank you that you are not bound in any way, by space or time. So we draw upon your unlimited self. We don't want to limit the Holy One of Israel. So guide and help us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. Gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we hear Jesus nearly 2,000 years removed. It helped me to think of it this way for more than one reason. And some of the things in the message will be brought forth because I was seeking to think of it from that vantage point. You see, these disciples were being introduced to new concepts Concepts that aren't new to us, but they were new to them. That's why Jesus calls them mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he's revealing through these parables what would unfold and is still really unfolding as the kingdom of heaven is established. 
and grows in this world in anticipation of its final consummation in the end of this age. We have a very, a much more developed understanding of everything that I'm going to be talking about this morning as we look at this parable than those who were first hearing this parable. And I'm not seeking to read back into it something that's not there. I'm seeking to hear it from the perspective of the full revelation of Scripture. And all the light that comes to it from all that has been revealed to us. So you're going to be hearing thoughts that come your way from that vantage point. I don't know what all the disciples thought. I don't know what those who were hearing him on that day were actually thinking as they heard these things. In fact, we know after the resurrection, Jesus had to continue to teach them things pertaining to the kingdom of God for 40 days. I mentioned that last week. So there were things they still were not clear. These parables didn't clear up everything. But it is helpful that Jesus does explain this parable to us and doesn't leave us guessing as to what the parable meant. And I'm personally thankful for that, and want to seek to not read into it more than I or we should, but limit ourselves to the things that Jesus has clearly shown to us. Jesus is the Son of Man, to whom the Father has given all power, all authority in heaven and earth. He's the anointed King of His Father's kingdom. In fact, in the explanation that he gives, he, re, he, re, he says the Son of Man in verse 41 will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, the Son of Man's kingdom. But then he, in verse 43, he refers to it as the kingdom of their father. And it's both. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of, of his father. It's the kingdom in which the son is the king. All authority is given to him. He is the anointed king of his father's kingdom. And it's a kingdom like no other. It's a kingdom that has not been seen before Jesus spoke these things. It was only seen in its prophetic, in a prophetic sense. It's a kingdom that began to unfold when Jesus was here on this earth. It's a kingdom that's still unfolding and will be brought to its consummated end at the end of this age. We're living now in the reality of the outworking of God's kingdom plan. And these parables help us understand what in this world is going on. What in this age is going on? There's eight parables. Each of them reveal different aspects of this kingdom. And when we speak of this kingdom, we're speaking generally of the rule of God in this world, in this age, as the king... Jesus Christ governs all things to bring all of those the Father has given him into his everlasting kingdom. This is what's happening. This is huge. I mean, what is happening now in history is huge. And we're a part of it. And we need to be not just mystified by what's going on, but actually buy into the program if I can say it that way. In other words, submit ourselves to what Jesus is saying is happening. Embrace it and live out the life that he's called us to live as his kingdom in this world in light of all that he says. From the first parable, we understand that this kingdom is not established or, or advanced by way of military might or aggressive political maneuvers. I said it's a kingdom like no other. As we saw last week, it is, it is advanced and it would be advanced, continues to be advanced by the sowing of the seed, the word of the kingdom. And of course, we saw there were four soils. And that seed falls on different grounds, on different soils, either the hardened soil, the pathway, or the stony soil, the stony ground, where there's some sort of immediate response, but it doesn't last. It burns off as soon as the heat, as soon as the heat of tribulation and trials beats down upon it. And then, and then there's the thorny soil, the thorny ground soil that chokes out any word that was received. It chokes it out. And that's the activity. 
of Satan, though it's not called that in the first parable, no doubt is part of the activity of Satan to seek to ruin, ruin any impact of the seed that is sown. There's only the good ground hearers that respond with understanding that's evidenced by kingdom fruit, kingdom kind of fruit produced in their lives. And we ended the message last week at that point. The second parable uses similar agricultural imagery as the first. And so Jesus illustrates in this second parable that the kingdom of heaven on earth now will not exist in a world-dominant, purified state until the end of this age. This is one of the mysteries. In other words, His kingdom has come, and yet not fully. Not in its consummated way. His kingdom has come, but it's come very differently from Old Testament Israel, or we might say the kingdom that was seen in the, uh, through the nation of Israel. And this is, so this is, is significant. It's, it's revelation. It's, it's really, I, I think we could say new revelation, or, or, or at least a clarification of any revelation that has been given before. Where this kingdom is established in hearts. There, there isn't a geographical boundary to it. It isn't connected to any one, one ethnicity or any one national origin. It's, it's different from that. It's established in hearts that then affects lives, that then affects communities, but it is not yet fully realized. And this is really important. Hope you'll, hopefully you'll see as the message develops. This parable describes spiritual activity in the world, good and evil, true and counterfeit, until the end of this age. It should not surprise us to encounter many religious organizations and people in the world that bear the name Christian and yet are not actually Christian, truly Christian, that ought not surprise us. This parable speaks to this reality. So let's just get the parable in our minds, verses 24 through 30. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, which has come, it's come in him. He has come down to bring this kingdom down to earth to establish it in some form. During this age in which we presently live, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So you have this man, he's a landowner. And he gives good seed. Perhaps the idea is even to these servants, they have distributed the seed. They planted the seed. And it says that the men slept. And as they slept, and some people make a big deal out of the men sleeping, you know, we shouldn't sleep, we should never sleep, we should always be on guard. But, you know, the fact is you got to sleep. That's not the point of the parable. I mean, there is a vigilance that we are to have. In fact, there are some who wax very eloquent at this point in talking about that issue. And it is a biblical issue. I don't think that's the point of this parable. So they slept. And while they slept, an enemy came in and sowed. Seed among the wheat. It's called tares. Darnell is another word that you'll read if you read anything about this seed. It's called a darnell. It, it is much like wheat. And so time went on and the servants are watching the wheat grow. But at some point there's a manifestation of fruit on the wheat, but there's something else in the wheat field. There's something else growing there. That all along looked a lot like the wheat, but it became evident that it was not wheat. It was this tear or darnell. Now, it wasn't a strange thing for there to be weeds among the wheat because weeds grow and that's what servants do. They, they get out there with a hoe and they, they, they get rid of the weeds and, and we're accustomed to that. We expect that, but here is something different. 
It's as if with every wheat stalk, there's this tear. In other words, there's something strategic going on here. And so the servants come to the master and they say, what happened? And of course, he tells them what happened. This is this is the work of an enemy. This isn't natural. This is this doesn't just this didn't just happen. Somebody has strategically tried to do damage by sowing tares among the wheat. And so they the servants being faithful servants and seeing the problem. And some people will will say, well, the problem was they slept. But I, that's not the issue. You know, that's not why uh, the tares grew. And so the, the master of the house, the, uh, the owner, uh, responds to them when they say, well, do you want us to go and gather up the tares? Get rid of them. And the master responds really quite, it might seem shockingly to us, but he says, no. Why? Well, lest as you gather up the tares, their roots being so intertwined and they being so close and their resemblance so close to the wheat that you might accidentally even rip up a wheat while you're ripping out the tear. Leave them alone. Let them grow together until the harvest. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything in the explanation about let them grow together, but it's implied in the explanation because he does make a big deal about the harvest and what will happen at the harvest time. But he says, let both grow together until the harvest time. Then there'll be a separation. Well, of course, the disciples hear the parable, and when they get alone with Jesus, when they come away from the multitudes, because Jesus didn't give an explanation with the multitudes there, the explanations were for the disciples, for those who had ears to hear, his, his disciples, that were already possessing these ears to hear. And so he, he, he goes into a house. We don't know whose house it was, probably in Capernaum. It may have been Peter's house. But he went into the house with them, and privately they say to him, in verse 36, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. That stood out to me. And that's why I've entitled the message, The Parable of the Tares Among the Wheat, rather than The Parable of the Wheat and the Tares. Because that's what caught the attention of the disciples. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. What gives? What's the point? What what are you saying in this parable? What about the tares? Now, the disciples seem troubled about this revelation. Frankly, I kind of had to deal with a little trouble in my own spirit about this. It seems odd that Jesus would respond as he does in the parable. And yet he does. And so we want to receive what Jesus says. Now, there are similarities and distinct differences between the first parable and the second. The seed in the first parable, you remember, was the word preached by the sowers. What is the seed in the second parable? It's the sons of the kingdom. It's not the seed as it is in the first parable. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. In the first parable, the seed is the same. In the second parable, it is not the same. And so the seeds are the sons of the kingdom planted by the son of man. And I remember what Paul said, some plant, some water, God gives the increase. And so there is the sowing of seed in the first parable. In the second parable, there is the son of man sowing. And where the son of man sows, what happens? Good seed. You might even say there's a general call of the gospel that goes out broadly. But then there's the effectual call. When the son of man calls, there's a response. There's a good seed. Good plant. Sons of the kingdom are brought forth. In the first parable, we said that there were many sowers in, uh, in that parable. He who sows seed. It wasn't, it was just who is that? It was, well, it's anyone. Anyone who sows seed. And the seed is being sown. It was, you could say Jesus was sowing seed. His apostles were sent forth to sow seed. And all gospel ministers since. And the church is given the responsibility to sow the seed. And so there is the broad distribution of 
the seed. Many sowers in the first. In the second parable, there are only two sowers. There's Jesus and there's the devil. The enemy. The wicked one. This is the activity that's going on. Jesus is on his throne. This is the activity that's going on in the world. In the first parable, the devil snatches seed that was sown. As I indicated earlier, probably involved in choking the seed. In fact, everything he can do to cause disturbance with the seed that is sown and to some degree received by those who hear it. In the second parable, he plants his own seed. And they are called the sons of the wicked one. So there's a difference here. There's a different point being made in this parable in relation to the first. The first emphasizes fruit, where the kingdom takes root. The second parable focuses upon the harvest, the end of the age. Not so much what is going on in the production of fruit now, but in what will happen at the end of the age in relationship to the fruitful or the the, the true, the wheat and the tares and the separation of the two. A fundamental point of this parable is this. In this age of the kingdom of heaven on earth, there is an enemy, the devil, who operates in a stealthy clandestine fashion while they slept in the cover of darkness he did what he did in the parable and his goal is to imitate the sons of the kingdom to negatively affect the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven in this world so where the kingdom of heaven advances in the world this is the the first major point I'm wanting to make here, where the kingdom of heaven advances in this present world, the enemy is active. Of course, if the kingdom is advancing, the son of man is active. There would be no advancement in his kingdom if he was not active. He sows the good seed, the son of man. Now, so or so, as we've already mentioned, But the seed falls upon various soils. It's the son of man who plants his seed in good ground. The son of man plants good seed, which always results in the sons of the kingdom. Genuine, fruit-bearing wheat. And so believers are the offspring of heaven. They are called, in verse 38, Jesus says, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The genuine Believers. He sows. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is that which comes down to the souls of men in this life. And when it is planted, it is Jesus by his spirit that's planting that kingdom, his rule in our hearts. And the kingdom comes in that spiritual form in this age. Right. You understand that. That's what's happening. As the kingdom of heaven is in this age, in this present age, and believers are the offspring of heaven that has come down. That's why we're called the sons of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is sown in us so that we bear the fruit and the likeness of our king. He sows, Jesus, the son of man, sows in his field. That's what the parable said. There was a a man who, it says, like a man who sowed good seed in his field, verse 24. And his field is what? What what is his field? Where, Where is the Son of Man sowing? The world. I don't know how folks get confused about that. But that seems to be a very confusing point. Now, the field is the world, and that's where he is he is sowing. You see, this is not a parable about the church. Notice applications. And I, I have to be guarded here not to, you know, chase thoughts. But the field 
where this work is, this kingdom work is being done is not primarily here. It is primarily out there. The field is the world. And it's about the powerful, invisible reign of Christ established in souls that make up his kingdom. These are the ones then that are qualified to be added to the church. Which is the visible manifestation of this kingdom and his instrument, the king's instrument to do his kingdom work. It is done through what the New Testament informs us is the church. We do kingdom work. This distinction is important, as we're going to see shortly. Well, as the Son of Man is sowing seed, planting His gospel, and all the results of that, His power in the hearts of sinful men, the enemy is at work. As the parable says, And Jesus says that the enemy who sowed the tares is the the wicked one, the devil. And he's sowing sons himself. He's doing something. He's planting something in the same field where there's gospel impact. There is also the impact of the enemy. Now, follow my Thinking here, it seems that Jesus is emphasizing more than simply all believers are tares before they are wheat. There are people who read this parable and say, well, we're all tares before we wheat. We're wheat, and that's what Jesus is saying. If you're not wheat, you're a tare. Well, that's just simply not true. That's not the point that Jesus is making. Many believers are not tares at all. Remember what a tare is. It's that word darnell. It's a look-alike. It's something that looks like wheat. It's confused with wheat. But all unbelievers are not like that. There are unbelievers that have no likeness to wheat. In fact, they are obnoxious, obvious weeds in the garden. Open in their wickedness and rebellion against God and Christianity. I use the word garden there. Probably shouldn't have used that word. In the world. I mean, you look at the landscape of the world and you say, well, all men are sinners. So therefore, therefore, all men are tares. No, all men are sinners, but all men are not tares. Do you understand the point here? Jesus is identifying a devious activity of the enemy in this present age. So then, tares, we could say, are a subset of unbelievers. You have the general world of unbelievers. All who are born into this world are born unbelievers. Under the bondage of sin, under the power of sin, under the condemnation of sin. But then there are, in this broad category of unbelievers, there are those that are identified as tares, which are strategically planted by the enemy. Among the wheat. The enemy, the devil, wants to deceive and to negatively affect what God is doing. And Jesus is telling us this. Sometimes, as we saw, the devil snatches seed away where it lies on hard ground, unreceived. But he also stealthily plants lookalike believers, professors of religion. In the world. And this is where it can get confusing because we say, well, they do get into the church. And they do. But that's not where we're to limit our thoughts here because that's not what Jesus has in view. Just simply the church. Like the landowner, Jesus knows what the enemy is doing. And this is the thing that struck me, really. You know, when the when the servants bought um, when they they came mysterious like like how'd this happen it was like the landowner was just waiting for them to come to him and immediately says well the, an enemy did this I know where they came from Jesus isn't, isn't mystified by this and that kind of caught my attention a little bit and I wondered about that 
And I, I, I eventually had to come to the place where I wasn't fighting against that. I was accepting that. And I, and I came to, to, in my own mind, to say, okay, Lord, you're the landowner. You own the world. This is your world. And this is the way you have chosen to work this thing out. And you're just revealing it to us. You're identifying what exists in this world now, in this age in which we live. And we're to live with the awareness of this. Satan is involved in this world and he's involved mimicking kingdom work. We saw this already, didn't we? Back in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus identified those who will in that day say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. The very same language that's used in verse 41 in the explanation of this parable. Those who will be cast out. Those who practice lawlessness. These are ones who had in some way an appearance. An appearance. Of being in the kingdom. Second Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul seems to open up this idea as he writes, say in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, sons of the wicked one. The devil is active planting sons of the wicked one in this world. It's been going on for a long time. Sons of the wicked one. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. This is what's so difficult about it. It's hard to identify them. It's hard to know sometimes. This is what Jesus is saying. There's a resemblance whose end will be according to their works, eventually they may become known. They may reveal themselves as in the parable, the darnel or the tares eventually came to be identified by the different fruit that they produced. But Satan is deceptive. He even fabricates another Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, Paul says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, another Jesus? Well, there is no other Jesus. There is only one Jesus. But you see, Satan's activity is to deceive and confuse and to have lookalikes. And he's done that. Or if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. There are counterfeit Christians in the world. In Second Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul refers to false perils among false brethren, he calls them. False brethren. Galatians 2. Is it Galatians 2? Or Galatians 2 and verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth. You can hear the activity of the enemy here. Who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may, might bring us into bondage. Even as Jesus is speaking this parable, Judas was there. And they didn't know, the other disciples didn't know Judas. Judas was a tear. But it wasn't apparent to them. Listen, over the past 2,000 years and in this present hour, Satan has faithfully reproduced religion that looks Christian and yet departs from the truth of Scripture. The pure simplicity of Christ revealed in Scripture. 
and has added mixtures of egregious and even damnable heresies. And this happened right out of the gate. Just a couple of examples. As John writes toward the end of the first century, he says in Second John 1 and verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So there was a battle on from the very beginning. There was this battle over who is Jesus? Who is he? And there were those who Satan planted in the midst of the kingdom, we might say, or the work that the Son of Man was doing in the hearts of His people. And they were questioning the doctrine of Christ. So John says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. And then in the first epistle, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know. The Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and so forth. How many, like the Pharisees, and you look across the history of what we call this age or the history of the kingdom of God or We sometimes say the church, how many like the Pharisees have seemed to be worshipers of God, whether individuals or or whole religious groups. And yet the truth is they trust their religious works for their righteousness. And they've led multitudes with them. There are whole religious systems that exist today who use the name of Jesus, talk about the same gospel details that we talk about But they are totally missing, totally confused, are not bringing forth the fruit of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Satan has even had some success affecting true churches. Revelation 2 and 3, you can read Satan's name connected to Pergamos, Thyatira, and Philadelphia. Satan was involved in affecting those true churches of Christ. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? And that really seems to be the question. What about the tares? The, the, the servants in the parable said, you want us to go and yank them out? And the disciples are thinking, surely they're thinking that sounds like a good idea. And that sounds kind of like a good idea to me. Let's just mow them down. Let's root them out. Let's get rid of them. Let's purify the world and get rid of these tares that are deceiving that are misdirecting, that are causing so much trouble, that are offending, verse 41. And they're actually practicing lawlessness. They're not following the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And yet proclaiming to be in some way. Believers in Christ, believers in Jesus. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus introduces here what at least hit me as very New Covenant practice. His answer, as far as I can see, does not fit the same answer that would have been given to the nation of Israel as they moved into Canaan and as they established the kingdom of Israel in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Would you agree? That, that, I mean, you read, you compare the two, and they don't compare. There's something new going on here. In fact, Jesus is presenting a spiritual kingdom, not like physical, national Israel of old. And this is the unveiling of that which has been going on now since Christ came. And so Jesus says in verse 30, here's what you do. You do the same thing. That this fellow in the parable was told to do, or the servants in the parable were told to do, let them both grow together until the harvest. The reaction of the servants 
to tares was to be aggressive, yank them out, clear the field. And we can understand that reaction. But the landowner representing Jesus responds in a rather shocking way, as we've already seen. You see, Jesus is concerned about the impact upon the sons of the kingdom in this present age. And there's something that Jesus knows. And whether we can understand it or not, and we're not, it's not unpacked for us fully. But this is what the parable says. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. And so Jesus is expressing this concern for the sons of the kingdom in this present age. And here's what I hear Jesus saying. Destroying, because to, to remove the, the tares from the field would very likely impact you and I who are genuine believers, whether it be in our families or in, in, our, in our culture, and, uh, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our communities. There are tares all around us. And, and we might be collateral damage. In some way, unduly hurt by this aggressive, punitive approach to the tares. You know, we spot somebody. We spot an organization. We spot somebody in our family. We, we can even spot somebody in the church. And we think, boy, you know, I think those are tares. Let's get rid of them. And so if Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because in doing that, you're going you're gonna to do damage to wheat. Leave them to me. You leave them be. I will sort them out in the end. By the way, I would suggest this, that you and I, certainly not the final judges, but we sometimes are not very good judges of what is wheat and what is tare. So we need to be careful. Now, there's a lot of directions we can take with any of these comments I'm making. And we can discuss things afterwards. But it is important that we understand what Jesus is not saying. And one of the reasons I say this is because I just had a conversation with somebody this week out on the street who is being challenged by this very parable, but being challenged in the wrong way because it's a, it, it, they have a misunderstanding of the parable. Jesus is not saying that churches must include unbelievers. When He says, let them grow together, He is not saying just leave the unbelievers. You know they're unbelievers. They may even profess to be unbelievers, but leave them on the roll. They're members of the church and they're members of the church until they die and you do a funeral and you preach them into heaven. They're members of the church. Jesus isn't talking about church membership here. And if He were, then He's contradicting Himself because when we get to chapter 18... He's going to say, deal with unrepentant members of the church in a certain way, right? He's saying, he's saying, put them out, exclude them. That's not what he's dealing with here. And he's not saying that ungodly, unrighteous, criminal elements in society should be left alone. In other words, shut the prisons down, let everybody just grow together. There are some people who read this and say things like that. Just let them grow together. Jesus will sort it out in the end. I like what Spurgeon said. Magistrates and churches may remove the openly wicked from their society. The outwardly good who are inwardly worthless, they must leave. For the judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. The judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. So what is Jesus saying? And let me just try to be as simple as possible. He is saying, do not take aggressive, punitive action against tares. He's not talking about every living being. He's talking about those who have a resemblance to Christianity. Religious folks. 
who say they have a relationship with God. The Pharisees who say they have a relationship with God. Religious organizations that say that they are Christian. Professing churches or individuals who hold heretical teaching. The rest of the New Testament instructs children of the kingdom how we are to live in this world. Come out, come out from among them and be you separate, but leave them alone. Don't try to root them out. There is no indication that religious imposters, heretics, or hypocrites are to be uprooted from the world. And why am I saying this? If you look at the history of Christianity, you will see far too many atrocities that have occurred in the name of the kingdom of heaven. And there are those today in our present culture, the United States, who are pushing for an agenda that would treat people who don't measure up to their standard of Christianity with the same kind of aggressive, punitive measures. Drive them out of the city. Drive them out of the community. Drive them out of the country. This is exactly what happened in church history, as we call it. Constantine, Christianizing a nation. It was the worst thing that could have ever been done. You're not a Christian just because you're born into a family or sprinkled by a priest and made a part of a church. That doesn't make you Christian, but that, that developed from Constantine forward. And then you had things such as the Inquisitions which followed. As whole areas were cleansed, were purged of even people like you and me that didn't agree with the government authorities. And if they had just read this, if they had just read what Jesus said, they wouldn't have done that. Because Jesus said, let them grow together. Don't do that. Don't do that. You have Calvin, John Calvin. He at least agreed to the death of Servetus. You say, well, what's so wrong with that? I mean, Servetus was denying the Trinity and and, and he began to question the deity of Jesus Christ. He, he deserved to die. Maybe he did deserve to die. But that's not your call, Mr. Calvin, or any other governmental authority that stands in the place of the religious group. That's Jesus' call to make. We're talking about a final judgment, you see. A purging of the land. Puritans with the witch hunts and the burning of the witches. Those are blights on Christian history. It is not according to the words of Jesus. How many true believers? Listen, we have those who would probably could be members of our church who had their hands bound, their feet bound and thrown into rivers because they wouldn't they wouldn't submit to the baptism of the state. And what I would say is, okay, let those who who think that you must baptize children, let them exist. Let, let's grow together in this world. I can tell you those who follow our understanding, and I say ours, I'm talking about Baptists, and those who would agree with historical Baptist teaching. Our position comes from Jesus Christ. Our marching orders do not include cleansing our city or state or nation of all opposing religious groups. We are not Old Testament Israel. We march under the banner of King Jesus. And these are orders that Jesus is giving to His kingdom now. The order from King Jesus to His kingdom carried out by His churches is leave them be. Let them exist. And so when I go downtown as I did this week, and I walk by these folks who, if I were to judge them just by outward appearances, I would say, boy, you're lovely looking people. You're probably Christians, aren't you? And and I, if I were to say, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yes, we believe in Jesus. And you keep talking. And ultimately you find out they don't believe in the same Jesus you believe in. So what, what should I do? Should I be happy when I hear that in Germany, it just happened this last week, 
somewhere where, where one of their kingdom halls was attacked and five of their members were killed? Should I say, well, good, we got rid of a few of them. No, that's not the spirit of the kingdom. Let them grow together. Well, preacher, are you saying that we must leave them alone? We must say nothing? We must let them exist without confronting them at all? No, you know that's not true either because the Scriptures clearly say we do confront them in the very Scripture that I read earlier in Second John. Second John 1. He says... In verses 9, I read, I read verse 9 and verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, what do you do? You don't rid them out of the land. You don't chase them out of the county. You don't, no, you, you, you don't receive them. You don't receive them into your house, nor do you greet them. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And I, and I take that. It doesn't mean you aren't neighbors to, to them and love your enemies and so on and so forth. That's the kingdom of heaven come down now. But it does mean you don't treat them in a way that it appears as if they are okay. They're, they're, they're right. They're approved of God. If anyone comes to you preaching any other gospel than that which you have received... Let him be anathema. Anathema. And you can pronounce the anathema of God, but that's not your anathema. That's God's. It's not you exercising that punitive judgment. That's left with Christ. We must continue to show the pure, excuse me, to sow, well, and show, but sow the pure, unadulterated Word of God, the Word of the Kingdom, Knowing there will be tares in the world. But we leave them to Christ our King to judge at the time of harvest. That's how he concludes. Verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. King Jesus, the Son of Man, will purge His kingdom. But when's He going to do it? When's he going to do? Should we, should we be concerned about the purity of the church? Yes. That's why there's church discipline. But brethren, we don't have to be bogged down with how many false religions there are that are popping up. That is not something we have to be burdened over. Our responsibility is sowing the seed, sowing the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. That's our responsibility. Not purging our communities of everything that is contrary or everything that looks close, but it's not. And I think there's probably too many Christians who are engaged in that kind of what they call ministry, heresy, hunting kind of ministries. And I question that, really. The time of reckoning and justice is coming. But that is not our task. That is not now. When does Jesus say that will happen? Yeah. And so in this age, we're functioning. Not as judges, not as ultimate judges. That's King Jesus' business. That will take place at the end of this age. At His appointed time, Jesus will purify all impure things that now affect His kingdom. I'm just skirting over this. We'll, we'll return to it in a, a couple of weeks when we deal with later verses that really sing the same tune. But verse 41, the Son of Man will send out His angels. And you can read, read at least an idea about that in Revelation 14 where angels are involved in this in time, this end of the age, harvest. And they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. There's going to be a purification. There's going to be a division. And it's not that these tares are 
in the kingdom in the same way the sons of the kingdom are in the kingdom. But they're in the kingdom in the sense that they're having an effect upon the kingdom. They're offensive and they're offending and they're, they're troubling and they're disturbing and, and they cause dissension and discord and there's all kinds of problems associated with the tares. And the practice of lawlessness, free-spirited mindset, you know, we're in the kingdom, we're followers of Christ, and we're all about love, if I can say that. Not true, not true love, but we're all about love, and we just embrace LBGTQ and everything else under the shining sun. That is not, that is not, that's going to be rooted out at the end of the age. But that's not our business right now. Now, we can't allow it in the church, can we? But we're talking about the greater view of the kingdom, of what's going on in the name of Jesus Christ out there. They will be removed. And oh, it's sobering. Verse 42, Jesus leaves no room for questioning the end of these sons of the wicked one. And of course, all others who are evil, bad, wicked. But these sons of the wicked one, it's as if there is a a special uh, movement, an expression, and it seems even an emotional expression here of Jesus. They will be cast into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This isn't just a whisper like, you know, can't keep this undercover here. You know, don't let this out. This is what's going to happen, but don't, don't talk about it. No, Jesus is really, this is a strong word that He's given, a word of warning. That he's giving. Sobering. But oh, what a blessing. Verse 43. We who are the sons of the kingdom, we keep our eyes upon the king. See, we don't get distracted by seeing all the other things that are going on. I know we're easily distracted, especially in an age where social media reminds us every single day, if we're tuned into it, about what's going on out there. But if we keep our minds and hearts upon the King and be busy about what He's called us to, and that's sowing the Word of the Kingdom, we're doing the business He's called us to. Then, then this is our hope. The righteous will shine. The righteous, those who are made righteous in Christ, those who have been given the power of the Spirit to walk according to the principles of righteousness set forth by King Jesus. We're followers of Him. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. What a glorious end. This consummate, glorious end of the kingdom that we are living in and really living for under and in relationship to King Jesus. And brethren, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he speaks of the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God that's going to happen in the end. There's going to be this revelation of the children of God, the sons of God. We're going to be, I mean, the whole universe is going to see us declared. We're going to shine as the brightness of the stars in heaven. Daniel 12.3 prophesied it. And here Jesus is talking about it. Paul talks about, about it. It's going to happen. I mean, to some degree, we ought to be shining now, right? We're to be walking as children of light. But there's going to come a day where there's going to be an overwhelming brightness of the glory that we're going to share in with Jesus, our Savior, as we reign with Him forever and ever. That's, right. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom we're in. That's the kingdom we're a part of. What an amazing grace, privilege is ours to be sons, to be children of the kingdom, to be participating now, not as tares, but as wheat, bringing forth fruit of the kingdom. The Son of Man is not guessing who the sons of the kingdom is. You know why the Son of Man is not guessing? Because He planted them. He planted them. He planted you. He planted His kingdom in you. And what does Paul say in 2 Timothy 2.9? We may not know. I don't know about you. For sure. You don't know about me. For sure. And this is sort of an application here. It's not exactly what Jesus is getting at in this parable. But the Lord knows those that are His. What follows that statement? Yeah. Let those, 
everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Not lawlessness, iniquity, but departing. We're moving away from that which one day will not be a part of His kingdom at all. It will be wiped out forever. Righteousness will reign in His kingdom one day. And we need to be now about separating ourselves in our own lives from iniquity, being identified as sons of the kingdom. Harvest time is coming. The end of the age is coming. Harvest time. Today. Today we're living in the age of growth. And all of us are growing in some way. But I remind you that right now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Though if God gives you tomorrow, it will be as well. If He gives you the next day, it will be as well. But don't be presumptuous about that. Right now is the accepted time. Is the kingdom of heaven in you? Father, we 